Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi everyone, it's Siobhan. Just wanted to update you all in case you have not heard, I decided to add another breaking free group coaching program for sugar addiction and recovery. It's 10 weeks long and I'm going to be offering that in April. For anyone that's interested, please email me at Siobhan at unsweetensio.com. My March class did fill up and I had a few people were interested and I thought, well, maybe I can do another one in April if I have enough people that want to sign up. So if this resonates with you, maybe you had thought about it in March and didn't sign up. We're doing another one starting in April, 10 weeks long. It includes the weekly Zoom calls that are recorded if you can't make it live, accountability buddies for daily support. Everyone gets a 45-minute one-on-one coaching session with me, which includes emotion code, and there's weekly discussion topics, homework, tools, tips, resources, community, accountability, all the things. So if you are interested, again, please email me at Siobhan at unsweetensio.com. You can also go to my website and look at the group coaching for a little bit more information. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 136 of Unsweetened Sio, the podcast. Today, we have Dr. Gary Fecky with us. He's an orthopedic surgeon and vocal proponent of nutrition being a major component of prevention and management of modern disease. In 2014, he became targeted by the processed food industry for his opinion on the perils of excessive sugar consumption culminating in a silencing by the medical board. 2018 saw a clearance of those charges with an apology from the board. In the process of that investigation, it became apparent that the issues were not just that of sugar reduction, but that of the recommendation of animal-based protein and healthy fats in a balanced diet. He has a broad understanding of the vested interest shaping dietary guidelines and particularly those around the anti-red meat agenda. So welcome, Gary. Thanks so much for sharing your story with us today. Well, it's good morning. I think it's good afternoon, evening for you, but it's definitely morning here. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And so he's coming to us from Australia. I'm actually in Mexico at the moment. So we are, you know, navigating all kinds of time zones to make this interview happen. So I really, really appreciate it. Well, I I define that we're actually in Tasmania, which is that island that'll off to the bottom end of Australia. I often describe it a bit like a life raft for Australia. So we're a bit of a life raft for the rest of the world. And the rest of the world's gone into chaos and we're still in relative, uh, I won't say common sense because we've still got politicians around, but we're, you know, it, it's a good spot to be. Yes. Oh, I love that. Well, let's start for anyone that hasn't heard your story. I think a lot of people might be familiar, but I just think we were talking about this before we started recording. I think it's fascinating. And I think a lot of of listeners will as well, just your your experience with 
really becoming targeted by the processed food industry for trying to talk about excessive sugar consumption. So would love for you to just dig into that a little more for us or wherever you want to start to like, as far as your own journey, when you started kind of figuring out, um, you know, what a, a healthier diet really looks like, you know, than maybe what you were taught in medical school. Well, I was eating a healthy diet as a kid. I was a fat kid. So my mother had me on different diets and eating healthy. But as it turned out, you know, I was just on the wrong path for decades. And medical school didn't help that in retrospect. And I, I actually think I have a term where I say, if you want to eat by the food pyramid, you're going to die by the food pyramid. And along the way, you're going to look like the food pyramid. You know, and that's that that whole that whole concept of how to eat and being told what to eat is actually a relatively new one. You know, we we sort of managed for a couple of million years without dietary guidelines, and it's really been in the last 40, 50 years where it's been literally shoved down our throats, and now we're getting fatter and sicker. So clearly, something's wrong with it all. Um, but I, you know, I've got my own personal health journey. Um, I had a, a tumor on the base of my brain. 20 odd years ago now and that's so I've been trying to think healthy eat healthy do healthy but I was out there and again to coin another term you know exercising to outrun a bad diet but I didn't think it was that bad I was eating off that food pyramid you know having my breakfast cereal fruit a bit of you know grain toast with a bit of honey on it wash it down with a glass of fresh fruit juice and, you know, and yes, I've been a sugar addict and a chocolate addict. And I, you know, there was a time when I was eating a big block of chocolate per day, but I was also 20 kilos, you know, 45 pounds heavier than where I am now. I used to be the chocolate cake judge at the hospital. So I wouldn't take kids' plasters off unless they brought me a chocolate cake. So that, you know, day one, they'd break their arm and the parents would say, how long is this going to be on for? And I said, well, actually, if you bring me a chocolate cake, it'll be six weeks. If you don't bring me one, it'll be eight. So we have... I, you know, that, that, that was my life, completely busy. In the midst of it, I've done a, I ended up taking on the role of doing most of the foot and ankle surgery on patients with diabetics. And whereas that was the occasional case that ended up becoming all-consuming in my public hospital work, I used to do very... There was one year where I did six elective operations for the year. The rest of the year, I was operating on emergency patients and the vast majority of those had diabetes. So you're trimming a bit of toe, a bit of foot and amputation here and there. The clinics were just full of patients with rotting flesh. Just, it's just messy. Um, and I know that sounds horrible, but that's exactly what it was. And um, um, I'd get the medical students in there on a Friday afternoon and I'd come in and say, come in here and have a smell. Yeah, that, but because I wanted them to be not distressed, but shocked as to how bad this problem is on people who actually didn't know that it was coming. And the vast majority of people have no idea about the diabetes and how bad it's going to be. But when you're actually confronted by several patients every week, who you're going to see every week because you're monitoring stuff. And then they're sick, you know, but then their families don't know what to do patients don't know what to do and this goes all the way back to gestational diabetes you can actually go in Linda went my wife went and assisted someone who was diagnosed with it and she said the nursing stuff the people advising people what to do with gestational diabetes they have a look of fear on their faces they don't know what to do 
So in my own practice, <clears throat> I had patients in hospital out of control diabetes, and there was one fellow in particular who's a good friend now, or still, you know, still, because you get to know these people. Anyway, I said, what are you eating? He said, well, ice cream. I said, what are you, why are you eating ice cream? You're in, he said, I get ice cream three times a day in hospital. So he's got out of control diabetes. I did end up amputating one of his legs. We've saved his other leg sort of just, he's lost a few toes. But he was being given ice cream three times a day. And that was what, it was one of those moments when the penny dropped. I went, whoa, hang on, there's something wrong here. And then I questioned the dietitians and I, and I said, oh no, that's the hospital food guidelines. And when you actually look at hospital food, not just in the Australia, but also in the US and Canada, I actually made up a Facebook page at one point in time called um, My Hospital Food, um, which I got criticised by the medical board because I was really just pointing out how bad hospital food is. It's carb loaded, it's sugar loaded, it's highly processed, it's cheap, it's nasty, it doesn't contain micronutrients nor macronutrients in the form of proteins and fats when it. It was just horrendous. Anyway, so I, 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 I was stupid enough to criticise that. But then I started down this sugar pathway and understanding of the perils of sugar and how it was in, affecting us. And Belinda and my daughter, I can still remember, we, we actually got, sat gone past that table in, um, in San Francisco airport. I said, that's where you girls got me into trouble. Because they said, oh, you've got all this information, you've got to get on social media. So they signed me up on Facebook and Twitter at that table in San Francisco and that within days I was targeted by the sugar industry the sugar beverage industry and then it just flowed on from there and because I was trying to change the guidelines and questioning they ended up being targeted and because my lectures started becoming viewed I ended up being targeted by the cereal industry so we've got those documents, internal emails, and there were uh, the documents was back in 20, well, the documents were 2014, 2013, 2014, saying cereal sales are down in Australia and New Zealand because of the concepts of low carb and paleo, and these seven people are to be targeted. And I was the only doctor, Australian doctor on that list. Um, I think Robert Lustig, was, I think you know Robert, Robert. <clears throat> Bob was on that list as well, but I was the only Australian doctor to be, you know, now that, that made me, you know, well, whoa, I've really upset the, you know, the multi, the billion dollar corporates here. So part of me was very proud that I was able to actually, you know, the other half of me went actually, whoa, hang on. If we were in maybe some other places in the world, it's only a matter of time before we got knocked off. Um, Anyway, I, got to, I was reported to the medical board on three occasions for giving this advice. Uh, each time we were able to track it back to someone who was directly or indirectly related to the food industry. That took years of research and backtracking. <clears throat> then when the documents were found uh, and ultimately I was silenced. I was in, um, uh, not allowed to talk about sugar and carbs and diabetes, which I still did. But, you know, because I said to the medical board, you know, I said, are you really going to keep doing this? And thank goodness for social media and, and uh, <clears throat> conversations like we're having now, because the people came out and supported me. So the medical board, um, I think Belinda did a, a you know, post about it, and it was seen over a million times. Um, I seen Mal Hotra in the UK, I seems a good friend. 
the same was actually on the BBC World News that day. So he was actually able to bring it up. He said, look, you wouldn't believe there's a surgeon in Tasmania, Gary Fetke, who's actually been silenced because he's talking about the perils of sugar. So the medical board, it, it went on for years. Uh, it was very messy, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of money. Um, and uh, most importantly, I had Belinda as support, number one, family, number two, and, and the wider community going, oh, and this is crazy. And finally, I was cleared in 2018. And that was really important because Tim Noakes in South Africa, his legal case was cleared, mine was cleared, Anna Dolquist in Sweden were cleared, all within Anna before Tim and myself. But it was really, really important that our cases, which had become quite uh, quite a lot of people in the medical profession or healthcare professionals are very much aware that if you're going to talk about sugar and carbs and low carb and keto, as it turns out, you were going to be in a lot of trouble because it was anti-establishment. Uh, so our, the fact that we got off, it was really important. So that literally opened the floodgates to act. And so I think, you know, your, your journey was around 2018, but you know, now you can talk about it. And I, I, I can't tell you the number of doctors that have told me that they can't talk about it, still can't talk about it. So oh, that's nonsense. Of course you can talk about it now. This, the path has been cleared. So um, I'm very honoured to be, you know, I didn't mean to be, but we were just doing the right thing. This is the right thing. This is actually can turn diabetes around. One of the times I was reported to the medical board, I was because I inappropriately reversed someone's diabetes. Now, I was wrong, you know, no, you're not allowed to cure. You're certainly an orthopedic surgeon is not allowed to cure someone. But all it took was a conversation, a little bit of a handout and support. And the trouble with actually lifestyle changes is it's no money in it for the health system. Well, it's not a health system, it's a sickness industry. You know, it's a, it drives me insane that um, when I just watch, you know, and doctors, you know, and I'll say the wider health community are just band-aiding sick care. You know, that's one of Belinda's terms, just band-aiding, just give a drug here, give a drug there, um, and think that you're actually making a big difference. Well, you're not, not until we do lifestyle changes, but that takes time, energy. And again, I coined one of Belinda's terms, Sam. If you want to do it properly, you need Sam in your life. You need support, accountability, motivation. And so you tell me where um, the health profession get paid well for doing that. You're a, you know, you're a health coach and on that sort of scenario, most people are not interested in paying money to get better. So that, that's a criticism of society. They're quite happy to take a quick pill, but if it requires energy, but I think that stems from decades of bad advice to people. So if you've actually given people to say, okay, go and eat by the food pyramid, you know, eat healthy, have more fruits and grains and have your slices of bread, then you're actually setting them up for failure. And so therefore people have become disenchanted with lifestyle changes. But what's been fascinating for me is watching those people who've adopted low carb, paleo, keto, different terms for the same thing, but reducing their sugar and reducing their addiction to that material and reducing their addiction to processed food, they've literally taken back control of their lives. They, 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 it's a complete game changer. It's like, so, you know, as a kid, I was on different diets and I fiddled with diets and avoiding this or that and the other thing. 
but it wasn't until I actually took sugar out of my life that I got started getting control. And it happened really quickly. Not to say I still don't get some occasional sweet craving, but I don't get that big craving for sugar that I used to get. That, it's, look, but so therefore my talks have been about the biochemistry of it, you know. I keep, I stick it because I can't be criticized on it. This is just biochemistry. This is how it affects the bloodstream, how it affects these cells, how it affects the brain, how it affects your hunger, how it affects your behavior. Belinda's work's been about how on earth we actually got to believe this nonsense, or I call it non-science. And that's when it becomes political and religious ideology and economics. And <clears throat> it, there's so many forces at play to keep us sick. It's not even new. Was it Marie Antoinette said, let the meat cake. Mm -hmm. you no, know, here's a little bit of a slightly outside of the box theory is whoever controls the protein controls the people. Have a little think about that over long periods of time. For centuries, we've had royalty that owned the crown land. The crown land is what you can hunt on. So the commoners were not allowed to be on crown land. You weren't allowed to hunt the royal game. So you weren't allowed to hunt the animal-based food sources. And the commoners were given the commons, which were the plains to crop, put their grains and cereals and, on, and their vegetables. So plant-based agriculture has very much been for the commoners and animal-based nutrition has been for the, the royalty and the elite. So, and I, you know, I, I sort of you laugh when you think about Marie Antoinette, but she said, let them eat cake. Well, she was, in fact, let them eat the grains because what you're going to do is, in, you know, and I'm, I'm extrapolating history, historical content, is that if you, if you keep the people weakened, they're not going to rise up against you. So it, and when you start looking at history and you start looking at where this is at and where it's heading at this point in time and the processed food industry is all about plant-based protein, plant-based fats, which plant-based foods, you know, which are clearly nutritionally incomplete. You're without your, you're, you're without your complete proteins. You're certainly without your essential fats. You're without micronutrients on the whole. So for gram for gram, you know, pound for pound, animal-based foods particularly if you eat tip to tail, is actually going to be nutritionally complete. And if you actually want to try and get the micronutrients from a plant-based diet, then you're a lot of time you're going to have to go along and have a lot more of them to get anywhere near it, to get the micronutrients. And society now, people eat a pizza, it's clearly got enough energy in it, just doesn't have micronutrients and you know, nor the mac or the proteins and healthy fats. So what do they do? They go and have another pizza or they go and have another pizza or you go out for an evening meal full of sugar and on the way home you stop at a takeaway so you can get some other food. So all these things are driving behaviour and hunger but it's actually chemical. It's either the chemicals in sugar, glucose and fructose drive behaviour or it's the lack of micronutrients that you're achieving in a normal diet that drive the behaviour. And once you eat nutritionally complete food, you're full you're not coming back to it. It's or really hard to binge on. Like <laughs> I always say that, like I haven't ever binged on a steak, you know, like um, I think about that a lot when I think I was just 
I was eating a lot more food when I was a sugar addict than I do now, but I was starving (laughs) for the nutrients, like you're saying. So I think there's so many people that are in that, you know, boat where they are just like, because they're not getting those macro micronutrients from what, what they are eating from all the processed food. Have you been to a Brazilian restaurant? Yeah. You know, you get a disc and you have to turn it over when you can go no further. And, and that's it. Um, when you, uh, the last time I can remember it was Belinda, myself and Nina Tychos and Nina and Belinda and Nina just go yap, 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 yap all the time. They're good friends, great friends, um, doing some collaborative work at the moment. So if, uh, and we just sat there and it, like we snuck out out of San Diego, we were at the conference down there, what the low carb USA, and we just wanted to have a yarn. So again, three quarters of an hour later, we are just sitting there almost in a food coma. And we hadn't eaten that much. We just had fulfilled our protein and micronutrients requirements. Fascinating. And in retrospect, it's, you know, it's all obvious. You know, once you, I say, again, I say this, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know, you can't unsee the, the benefits for the individual. You can't unsee the benefits for yourself. And there are lots of people who are still sugar addicts who go, you know, and break, you know, that, that, uh, you know, my, I think myself included, you know, I you know, had some occasional, you know, breakouts. Um, one of our daughters, uh, she would have sugar binges. She's not heavy or anything. And she just said, actually, she'd ring me up and said, oh, dad, I've just eaten a box of ice creams, you know, just... I said, well, it's okay, darling, you know, and she had about 12 relapses before she finally got it sorted. She, you know, she's fine now and she's raised two relatively low carb kids or raising them at the moment. And all I can say is she had low carb pregnancies and, you know, and guess, and everyone's doing fine. I did, I did a talk on pregnancy and morning sickness. I don't know if you've seen that one. No, tell us about we can, that. We can, I mean, just go down that pathway. And again, it's a, um, Kate was pregnant, horrible morning sickness. And um, the old wives' tale is don't worry about morning sickness, the baby will be fine. But it made me think when I was watching her, poor thing just chucking up and, you know, I couldn't eat and whatever. I said, actually, you're in nutritional ketosis. We tested her. She was you know, in, in ketosis, not diabetic ketoacidosis, but just in ketosis, which is a normal state of being. She hadn't been eating enough. So I thought, whoa, hang on, this is, I wonder how the baby's going to go. And then I came to realise we now have, if you actually look at women who are, have horrible morning sickness, we have the, the best experimental group of all time to test whether or not keto is safe or not. And there's tens of thousands of results out there in the, in the literature about the results of what happens with severe morning sickness. So if you want to make an experiment, you want to find the most vulnerable group of people to do it on. Well, actually, the growing baby's perfect. You want to put them in the most extreme circumstance, which is keto, and not, not, not feed the mother. You then want to monitor them carefully, which is what pregnant women are monitoring. And you want to look at firm endpoints like uh, confinement times, 
complications, birth weights, maternal outcome, baby outcome, uh, uh, we call it um, deformities and, um, and miscarriage. And there it was, I went, actually, this is all this study's already been done. So when you start collating the data, I came up with about 40,000 women who had been you know, obviously participants in this and been followed. And then I actually looked at another group, which is women who have gestational diabetes, so poorly controlled blood glucose. And then I looked at all those outcomes and just compared it, just, you know, eight tables up. So as it turns out, the more severe your morning sickness, and sure, these tens of thousands of women weren't all tested for being in ketosis and the, or the degree of it. But the long or short of it, if you can't eat, you're going to be in ketosis and cycling in and out of it. Anyway, the more severe your morning sickness, the more likely is that A, your pregnancy is going to go through to term, your baby's going to be of normal birth weight, you're less likely to miscarriage along the way, you're going to have a lower rate of deformities, the child is actually going to have an un, more likely to have an uncomplicated birth, the child is actually going to be achieve its milestones and it's going to be more intelligent by the age of two. Wow. And on the flip side of the coin is what happens in gestational diabetes, which is very common now. Is and I don't think it's just because not, you don't have to be obese to have gestational diabetes. You can just and I think it's that these women are in a hyperinsulinemic state. They've been producing eating too much carbs, producing too much insulin. So you're more likely to, if you've got gestational diabetes, the more severe it is, you're more likely to miscarry. You're more likely to not carry the baby through to term. The baby's more likely to be high or low birth weight, more likely to have birthing complications, more likely to have congenital abnormalities, more along the cardiac line, which are environmental rather than the genetic line. And you're more likely, those children are more likely to be sick, have obesity down the track and also have learning difficulties. Mm. And it's all there. That's all I did was just collate the data and be brave enough to say, actually, this is ketosis. This is the ultimate experiment on the safety of ketosis. So, yeah, my theory on it is that the safety mechanism of the body in a fasting state is to move into ketosis. We also know that spiritually, you know, that all religions observe periods of fasting. And we know that in, in a, uh, biochemically, ketones are actually the primary fuel source for the brain is certainly the primary fuel, fuel source for the developing brain and the baby. It is also um, a sense of it's when the time when, when cells clean themselves out, mitochondria, which are the engines of cells clean themselves up. It's that cleansing time. And in fact, it's funny because spiritually, it's also seen people do fasting, it's for mental clarity, and it's their spiritual good health. That's been observed for thousands of years. I've just applied a bit of biochemistry to it in the last uh, 10 years. It's just, just interesting. You know, yeah. our, our forebears were not stupid. Yep. You know, they got, they got, they, we're here because of our forebears were eating fresh local seasonal food. And fresh local seasonal whole food, 365 days of the year, is low carb. There are times of plenty when the fruit's on the trees, when the fruit will drive behaviour and force you as an animal, and we're just animals, to actually eat more and more of it. And that's one of the things about fructose. 
when you look down the biochemistry, which is half of sugar. But it will drive behavior. Animals will strip a tree bare of its fruit a couple of days before you want to eat it. Because it's got sweet enough for them. It'll drive their behavior because they want to eat it so they can get fat for winter hibernation. But if you're going to eat fresh local seasonal food, understand that the sugars, the carbohydrates, the, the glucose, the fructose, even in complex carbohydrates, is there is a designer food for you to eat to get fat for winter. Mother Nature intended it to be eaten. My fruit talk's one of those ones, which is look up Fetke and this fruit good for you, which I ended up in a debate one day against a professor of food science. And I was given the topic and then all of a sudden it become quite, a, quite an enormous talk. But effectively, fruit is advertising itself to be eaten. So it's for its own survival. It gets bright and ripe and shiny so that we eat it as animals and then deposit it around so the seed can find a, a, you know, another, another place to grow. The trouble is the fruit hasn't worked out that we've actually put most of the time, we just put that, their seed into a porcelain bowl. Doesn't actually help them their, their survival much at all. Um, so if you observe Mother Nature, you observe ancestral health and ancestral eating habits, and we observe evolutionary pathways, we weren't meant to be having processed food in our diet. Processed food is meant to be in our diet if you're a corporate and you want to produce something which is cheap, has shelf life and has profitability and is addictive. Like it's, it's if, you know, and so, you know, I'm all for the, the local farmer getting back and supporting them because they've got your fresh produce, they've got it seasonally available, they've got what's appropriate for your, your latitude. You can eat more fruit closer to the equator than you can further away and that's related to the amount of vitamin D that you have in the body. Vitamin D you need to actually metabolize some of the byproducts of fructose. Again that's all in my talks on nutrition right. and inflammation and how the biochemistry of fructose. That's it. But again, I'm, the more I've gotten down into this topic, it's just fascinating. But the more I learn about it, the more I'm empowered to actually get take back control. And that's what Thank you. But if you if you're waiting for the government to put all this stuff in guidelines for you, when the politicians and the industry are controlling their guidelines, forget it. You know, this is about this sort of thing: having a chat, having a yarn, and uh, having a bit of free speech on the topic. And I think that's what's so frustrating and disheartening for people is that are like following, like you said, the dietary guidelines that are out there and or asking their doctors what they should do or thinking like they're getting help and doing the right things, but then not getting, just getting sicker and sicker, you know, and then maybe given this medication or that medication. And I think that's just what's so frustrating. And a lot of times until you experience something personally, some kind of health crisis or scare and find other means to treat it, then you realize, oh, okay, this really, you know, but it's really, you have to like seek that out. It's, it's becoming more common knowledge. Thank goodness. For, like, you know, people like you and Belinda, like talking about it, but I think that's, what's so hard for people is um, just, there's so much conflicting information out there. And that's why I just always tell people like, just give it a try. That's the best thing you can do. 
and see how you feel. Like that's real data, you know, for yourself. It's, yeah, it's it, that it's individualized healthcare. That's what we're supposed mm -hmm. to be doing. Um, sugar is a designer drug. It's, you know, you know, Mother Nature designed it for us to be addicted to it, and it, and we're wired for it for survival. You know, to get fat for winter, that we are just animals. We have the same metabolism, we have the same biochemistry, the same energy cycles, mitochondria as as animals do. So we stop. We might be more intelligent, or we think we're more intelligent. Um, I often wonder about that one. <laughs> but but if you if you're addicted to sugar, you can't think straight. Yeah. And. Uh, Inflammation sits behind absolutely every single medical condition, right, you know, right through from cancer, diabetes, obesity, mental health, everything. And one of the great things is that, and there's more and more work being taught, done around nutrition and mental health. And when you start looking at it and you get rid of the processed food, you get rid of the sugars, you get rid of the seed oils, you get rid of the excessive carbohydrate intake. And that was my model, the, the model of, the combination of fructose, excessive glucose via carbohydrate and seed oils comes together to give inflammation in every cell, every blood vessel, every mitochondrial membrane. And we've set ourselves up to fail. But those people who actually do this and cleanse their body of all this stuff, unfortunately, the half-life of seed oils in the body is about four years, probably. Certainly several months, but it's probably out as far as four years. Um, but when they get there, people, and you'll know that you'll have your, your people who follow you, that they get their mental clarity. And it's not just empowerment. It's actually you do get your brain working again. And I, I remember, again, Tim Noakes in South Africa, they, when they were in court, they every afternoon they wanted to actually keep the case going because the other side everyone else in the courtroom had post-lunch fatigue, their brains had stopped working. They, and they got the, and they said, no, we're quite happy, we'll just keep going because they were keto-adapted, low-carbing and just watched the other side melt as the, as the day went on. Um, like, this but, is exactly what we're talking about, Exhibit A um, here. Well, yeah. but you know, even school curriculums have changed. You know, we're here in Australia, I know some teachers here that, that or many teachers, they tend to teach the core subjects in the morning, whilst the kids have got some concentrating ability. They then have fruit for morning tea, which is not ideal. Yeah. Um, I'd love to have a kid to have some cheese, but then everyone says, oh, you've got lactose intolerance, and every kid's got some intolerance in the world. Um, I th I'm just intolerant to intolerances, I suppose. Uh, but, but by the afternoons, they can't teach subjects which are actually require concentration. Kids are coming off they're not they're hungry or they've come off their their lunch box, which is full of garbage or garbage. And so the school curriculums have changed to accommodate kids attention spans when the kids attention spans are directly related to the nutrition. I just remind when you talk in leadership in this. I had a meeting with one of our ministers of health. I actually think ministers of health actually, you know, it's a horrible portfolio to have. And I actually think the politicians who actually end up in as ministers of health aren't smart enough to get out of it. <laughs> anyway, what our minister of health, I caught up with him one day and I talked to him about sugar. He said, oh, 
myself and the family have given up sugar. I said, well, okay, now recommend that to the people. No, I can't do that. Mm. So, you know, it, it, this is the thing which really drives me insane. We've got leadership that are doing one thing, but it's not good enough for the common. And, uh, you know, things like that just drive, you know, drive me crazy because, and that's what we're battling against. We're battling against vested interests that have got so much entrenchment in the system. It comes back to the individual. And individually, your buying power actually means something. And, you know, 12 years ago, I started talking about the perils of sugar and everyone looked at me completely as I was from a different planet. And then margarine and carbs and whatever. But now it's actually, you know, I'm heartened to, uh, you can go to the shops and you know there is you know there's keto friendly bars or or here in Australia I, I, um, you go down to the um, the alcohol store and I found there you know a couple of years ago five low carb beers in Australia that's almost that's unheard of <laughs> so um, I was in the supermarket a couple of years ago and found some celeriac which is a root vegetable. It's a low carb root vegetable. Now I'd never seen celeriac and I had Belinda take a picture of me and I was holding up celeriac and I go, I've won, you know, the fact that the big supermarkets are now bringing in a low carb vegetable. So that, that's because the market's demanding it. So the individual person has a lot more power in changing not only their own circumstances, but the big picture. Yeah, so that's really good to think about because I think a lot of times people feel completely overwhelmed. Again, like if you're hearing all of this for the first time, I think it can feel well very disheartening, overwhelming, and well, what am I going to do about it? But it really starts with what you're saying, your own choices of where you're spending your money. And we are seeing some shifts. You know, I feel a little more positive now. It does seem like there's just a lot more attention around sugar and processed foods. Um, you can go to a restaurant here in Tasmania or in, just in Launceston in particular, which is where we've been banging on about it for a long time, <clears throat> and say, what low carb options have you got? I mean, it's pretty easy just to have meat and veg, you know, and skip all the, all the sugary stuff. But people are talking about it. So the waiters and the waitresses, they actually understand the concept. Mm -hmm. So we were out at a function last night and uh, it came around and the, and the stuff, there was clearly some food which was fried. The people running it are relatively low carb, but there was stuff. I said, could you tell me what seed oil, what, what oil this has been fried in? I will have to go and check. So it's just, that's, that's a non-confrontational way of planting a seed rather mm -hmm. than saying, I'm not going to eat that garbage. You ask the person serving you, it's not their job. You know, I'm not, I don't want to hassle them because then you go back and it goes back to the chef. And if there's enough people asking what this is being cooked in, then all of a sudden it's, it's the chef starting to do the research because the market's now demanding that they want that product. And it's just about becoming a little bit more civilized in the, so I've, I've, you know, a lot of people have said I've been quite confrontational over the years and that's quite clear. And I openly admit to that because I just, don't like chopping people's legs off. You know, I, I just, it is the most horrible thing that you can do to someone. You know, when it's surgery. preventable, you know, when it's, it's, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And by the time they get to, you know, to that point, it, it, 
um, if two thirds, I think the figure is about two thirds of the median survival at a time after an amputation is less than three years. Mm. So you know, you are, two thirds of people who have a leg amputated are going to die. And it's not just because their leg amputation, it's because it's the microvascular disease through the rest of the body. It's horrible, horrible numbers. And they, they, it's too late for them to change things around this certain amount. It's not too late to change and hopefully make that leg survive for longer. And even low carbon, getting really tight diabetes control, I've seen it improve kidney function, certainly improves overall function, improves a bit of microcirculation. But their brains are often scrambled by that point in time. And you can't, you can't save them. It literally is band-aiding. But you can have a, you can try and turn around the rest of the family. And often a person who's coming with them, it's a good chance to actually educate them because they're already serving the food to the person. So if you can educate them to actually serve better food to them, they're actually going to be getting better food to themselves. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's all encompassing. It is overwhelming, but it's not. It's um, it's about clearing the, the stuff out of your pantry. Uh, Karen Zinn's a, a professor of nutrition in New Zealand in Auckland. And she loved Karen's quote, uh, empty pantry, full fridge. Mm, love that. Mm -hmm. Really simple. And the problem with eating fresh food is that it takes time. A, you've got to go out and shop. B, you've got to do something with it. You can't just stick it. But, you know, nowadays we've got these things called refrigerators. Have you got refrigerators in the US? <laughs> we do. No, really? Not in, quite, in a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of hotels there don't, actually. It's quite interesting. That's you've actually true. got to go and ask for a refrigerator. True. I couldn't believe it the first time. I said, can I have a fridge? Oh, yes, it'll cost you an extra whatever per day. I said, I'd like a fridge because I've got food when we travel. with mm -hmm. a bit self-sufficient. And uh, it's fascinating. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I talk about eat, cook once, eat thrice. You know, actually make up your food, put it in the fridge, put it in the freezer, and come back to it. Mm. And so um, uh, we have meatball Mondays that last till Thursdays. You know, forget this meatless Monday. We have meat. We deliberately make meatballs on Mondays, and just make up. You know. A, a whole lot of them and then stick them in the fridge, stick them in the freezer and that goes to go to snack. So rather than look for a biscuit, oh, I have a half a meatball. Okay, meatballs can go into any, back into anything. Uh, it, it, it takes a bit more time. It's not, it's not more expensive. That's the other thing. You know, people say, oh, it's more expensive. I say, no, if, you, if you're eating stuff in season, it's actually quite cheap. Go to your local market, support your farmers, all that sort of thing. And I also think like, because a lot of times you're eating at home more, so that usually saves money when you're cooking it yourself. But I have also found, because when I used to be sugar, I'd go on these binges, I was spending a lot more money on food because I was eating a lot more and I like kind of go on these binges. So I might go to the grocery store after work and I could spend 40 or $50 just for a meal. I was gonna, like a bunch of sugary stuff I was gonna eat that night where I just don't do that you know mm. anymore so I do feel like but for me I've always said I I do think food <laughs> is our health care you know we're talking about health care versus sick care and that's like the first like food is medicine so I'd rather spend more money on it but I do feel like it's not as expensive as people think that it is one of our daughters did a costing on this 
the dietary guidelines, food versus like a, a complete meal plans, the whole thing, but actually did the financial cost. Forget the nutritional aspects of it, but just the financial cost. And every time it came back cheaper. If you're trying to make your cut cakes out of nut uh, flowers and things like that, and you're trying to do that, then it can be more expensive. But if you decide to not make cakes and you know not reward yourself in, in, in trying with fake sweeteners and fake cakes and whatever, then it's, it's not more expensive. I've always said to people, look, it's really simple. It's going to be more expensive on your time. Mm-hmm. But you've got a choice of spending that time now cooking, preparing, which is family time, it's quality time, bringing the kids in, start, you know, making, getting them to actually understand the benefits of cooking and teaching them to cook. You've got a choice of spending that time now in the kitchen or spending that time in my waiting room in 10 or 20 years' time. And I can tell you what's going to be more expensive. So true, yeah, in the long run. And I say that too to people because I don't really love to cook that much, but I changed my mindset around that to I love, so when I'm having that night where I don't feel like I'm like, I love preparing healthy meals for me and my family. And that's how I've changed my mind around that. Like sometimes I think of cooking as a chore. I know some people love it, but I have really been able just to tell my, like, I I do love that I'm cooking healthy, nutritious meals, especially, you know, for my kids and teaching them that. So I do think that time investment is worth it. Where before I was one of those people that just want to do something quickly so I could move on to something else. But now to me, it is very important that that's actually uh, a good way to spend time. And now being free of sugar and flour for people like, you know, we're talking about the brain fog. And for me, it was just so many obsessive thoughts around what I was going to eat or not eat. That took up so much of my day um, where I just feel like I have so much um, well, more definitely mental energy, but also time to do other things because I'm not worried about, like, I've kind of focused more on preparing healthy meals than you know, what diet I was going to try. I just had so much wasted time on when I was eating so unhealthy. So yeah, I just feel like it's like shifts that you can make. And definitely as you get that sugar and processed food out of your body, um, I do think the mental clarity kicks in and it's easier, you know, than to do. I think think you get less angry. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, I, I find that if you catch up with people at a low carb conference or you know, a sugar summit or a keto thing, everyone's pretty chilled. You know, it's just it, it's just the good people who have got themselves sorted out. Yeah, and um, much nicer people than going to a medical conference. I've actually once gone to a, an ILSI International Life Sciences Institute, which is just the um, the scientific arm of the processed food industry um, started by Coca-Cola and we can talk all about, you know, mm-hmm. but that literally it was a Coca-Cola meeting and um, I went there to actually, their guest speaker was Luke Tappy who described the, the, the biochemistry of fructose in 2010, 2011. So I actually went to the meeting just purely to meet him and ask him a couple of questions. I already knew the answers, but the number one question I wanted to ask him was, Professor Tappy, is there a human biochemical requirement to ingest fructose? Is there any requirement for us to eat fructose? 
The answer is no. I already knew the answer, but if I asked the person who described fructose metabolism to his face, anyway, the, the people at the Coca-Cola meeting were not particularly happy I was asking that. And neither is there a requirement to eat glucose. Uh, I did a talk earlier, or well, last year, sorry, I keep forgetting which year we were in it, last year on um, carbohydrate, the dose is the poison. And I was really interested to just take up an academic argument of how much glucose the body sees as toxic. Just biochemistry. So forget the emotions, forget the, you know, the, the politics of whatever, because everyone, you know, you're told by guidelines that 30, 40, 50% of your diet should be carbohydrate. Well, I actually looked at the, what happens to glucose in the body and the body does everything in its power to get glucose out of the bloodstream. The primary response is insulin. So the amylase in the mouth actually starts dissolving into simple molecules of glucose. And at the moment it hits the bloodstream, it's taken out of the bloodstream by, by insulin. And a high blood glucose we know is dangerous. So there's a little bit of blood glucose floating around to keep a few cells going, which are the red blood cells, some cells in the eye and some cells in the kidney in the loop of Henley. But why? So it's again called an inversion. It's, you know, let's look at it from a completely different aspect. What happened? Why does the body want to get in glucose out of the bloodstream as quickly as it does? Because if glucose was fine for us, why don't we just soak ourselves and have high, high, high blood glucose? Anyway, it's an interesting argument. I thought it was. And what happens is glucose actually damages every blood vessel wall called the glycocalyx, the lining of the blood vessels, which actually starts, allows the blood to flow. Uh, it has, insulin is not actually a very nice hormone. Insulin is our fat storage hormone. It's also our growth hormone for cancers. It's also an inflammation hormone for arthritis. That study came out in 2020 out of China. So the body's producing enormous amounts of insulin to get glucose out of our bloodstream. And so I actually came up with the figure that I came up with, again, academic argument, four grams of glucose, one teaspoon of glucose, the body sees as toxic. Mm. And maybe less of fructose. But the body actually, when you change your mindset, it's about changing your mindset about how you eat and how you live, change our mindset about carbs. Actually, the body actually sees them as toxic. I realize that's a controversial position. The first time I gave that to 350 doctors, nobody argued with me. I went, come on, you know, I've, I've, I've thrown out, I've come out with the most contentious statement to say glucose is toxic to the body. Nobody argued with me. I don't know if my lectures were that good or, or my argument was that good or just people were shocked that I was crazy enough to say it. But it's just an academic argument. Why does the body get glucose out of the body as quickly as it does out of the bloodstream? Because it's no good for us. Yeah. Fructose drives behavior, but it's got metabolic effects in the kidney, in the liver, our fat storage mechanisms, the whole lipid um, lipoprotein issues are you know, largely related to our, our glucose and our carbohydrate, our glucose and fructose intake. About if you're, if you're overweight or insulin resistant, a third of the glucose you eat gets converted into fructose called the polyol pathway. That was a, that was a, you know, that was a real, really important step in, in working that out. And, and uh, Richard Johnson, uh, 
is a US nephrologist. He came, you know, that's his, a lot of his work. Uh, I don't know, do you know Richard? Mm -mm. Uh, you should get him on at some point in time. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. He, he wrote a book called The Fat Switch. He's got another one out at the moment, but just incredibly nice guy, understands all this biochemistry, well worth chatting to. And um, I, the more you know, the more you can actually take back control. I suppose that's, you know, that's the message here. I agree. I was just thinking that too, because we are out of time. And I was thinking how education and hearing you talk has been so critical. I'm sure there's so many people listening today. It's just this education component, I think, is the first piece of this. You know, you when you know better, you do better. And like I just remember hearing some of this for the first time and just being completely like, what? I mean, it all makes sense, like you said, once you learn all the pieces, but um, just so grateful that you're putting all this information out there. I'm just thinking if people want to hear some of your other talks and what's like the best way to... I, look, I, I suppose the talks are pretty simple. That Most of them are on YouTube. So Gary okay. Fetke and YouTube, um, I've got my channel. Goodness knows why surgeons have got their own channel. <laughs> um, but that, so, you know, the biochemistry is there, but if you understand, like the, one of the talks, some of the talks that I'm really proud of are the ones which are actually maybe not as viewed as much. So my fruit talks and cancer talks and nutrition and inflammation talks have all been seen a lot, but there's one called, um, the central role of nutrition and everything, which I did at CrossFit. That's the very first time we talked about religion. There's one called the failure of medical education. If you understand why all this deliberate misinformation, this disinformation is out there, then you can position yourself in it. And when you actually understand how the medical profession actually believe this nonsense, you know, not this, you know, the low carb, they actually believe the old food pyramid. And that goes back to 1910. If you understand where nutrition information has come from, it goes back to 1917 and a whole lot of religious ideologies come through there, then supported by the processed food industry. Then you can understand how our guidelines are so screwed up. And then you can understand how what's being served at the supermarket and the schools and the nursing homes and the hospitals and our defense forces, prisons, whatever, is actually determined by the food guidelines. And is it, and I'm just fascinated, again, is it any wonder we've become so fat and sick? And so for those people who have the information, who are privileged enough to find the information, and then who are privileged enough to actually live in a society where you can get access to fresh local seasonal whole food, then it's their duty as a human being to actually do that. So if you've actually find out this information and you live in a society where you have access to that food and there are multiple tracks of groups of people around the world who just can't get a the information certainly can't get fresh local seasonal food and they think what's happening in the in Europe at the moment. Africa uh, uh, living in, in, in places in, in, you know, in Southeast Asia. Even you know, you've got you've got food ghettos in the US. That's termed a food ghetto. You just can't get access to. But if you're privileged enough to actually get access to this and improve your own health, it's your responsibility. 
as a human being to do the best thing for yourself and the planet and the people. Um, that's a sort of a hardcore way to look at it. But now that I have that information and I have access to that food, I'm not going to go and eat stuff that comes in an enormous number of food miles and highly processed and you know, multiple ingredients on the, on, the, on the label that you have to look up on the internet to find out what on earth they are, plus all the other ones they don't include. So that, um, if you've got that information, make the most of it because that's for yourself and for your children and your family. Probably a good point to finish, isn't it? Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I was going to say, do you have any other final words? But I think that was a perfect way to just end it. And it's so, so true. Um, thank you so much for being on today. I was already thinking, oh, maybe we can have you back next year to dig a little deeper into some of these areas. I'll definitely link for everyone listening the, your YouTube channel. Um, just so they can listen to some more of these talks, because I bet you have a lot of people wanting more information now. So oh, look, thank I'm, you. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Facebook drifted off a little bit. So look up Gary Fitke or Fructose No on Twitter. There's a website called um, nofructose.com, completely out of date. I keep apologizing to people. It's on, the, on, those, on that list of, okay, I've got to completely update it. Linda's got a website called isupportgary.com. And that was uh, one that was set up pretty well to, to help me get cleared of all the charges. So she put an enormous amount of work in. So I should never ever finish a conversation without acknowledging the, um, uh, you know, how huge a role she is in, 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 in my life, our life. So she's a good person, much nicer than me. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with Belinda's work as well, but I'm gonna I'll put that website on there too, so people yeah, can just learn her, more. Her, some of her talks are on YouTube as well. So perfect. Well, thank you again so much. I really, really appreciate this conversation. I just think it's so important. All right, thank you very much. Be well. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day, and remember. Life is so much sweeter without sugar.